God, we thank you so much for uh, this moment. Lord, we do not take this for granted that we get to sit under the power of your word. God, the word that is authoritative, the word that is inerrant, the word that is incredibly relevant for our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who, who meets our needs. Lord, you know all of our burdens, all of the, the things that weigh heavy on our heart today. And so we pray that you would, you would use your word to minister to us today, God. We pray that your spirit would impress your word upon our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What were you expecting? That was the the question that was asked uh, to me by my mentor when I was a freshman in college. The first couple of months there, I was meeting with him in his office, and uh, we were having this conversation, and I said something to the effect of, "I, I feel like there are things that are getting in the way of my college experience. And, uh, and he said, well, what kind, what kind of things are getting in the way? And I said, well, class, for starters. Class is getting in the way, and homework, and I went to Cedarville, so chapel was getting in the way of my college experience of, you know, I just want to spend time with people and hang out with uh, my new friends. And so he asked the question, well, well, what were you expecting? And so he dove right into kind of the root of, of the issue, which were my expectations, that for me, uh, growing up, I was told that college is the best years of your life, that college is the time in which you move out from underneath the authority of your parents. There are no rules, you know, there's no curfew, no responsibility, and it's all just play and, and all fun. And so imagine, you know, the first couple of months of my college experience where my expectations were confronted with reality. See, in college, you probably have even more responsibility than, uh, than before entering college because you don't have mom and dad telling you what to do. It's up to you. And, uh, and so my, my expectations and reality just were not matching up. And so as a result, it was impacting uh, my first semester in college. Now, our expectations uh, have a dramatic impact on the experiences that we have in this life. We, we know this to be true that our expectations have a way of, of shaping just how prepared we are in life. Our expectations have a way of, of establishing the standard of how satisfied or dissatisfied we intend to be on a particular kind of experience. And you know this to be true in your own life when you think about marriage or parenting or your job, or a vacation, or a new restaurant, or a new movie that you're about to experience. And you all have, you've, you've all had that moment where the expectations that you have on that experience don't always match up with reality. And as a result, it impacts what you experience in that moment. So our expectations do have an impact on how we live our lives. And Peter knows that to be true as well. In fact, in our passage today, Peter is going to be addressing yet again this topic of suffering. And yet he does so not only for the last time in this letter, but I think Peter addresses this topic of suffering from a new perspective or in a new way that we haven't seen before. What we're going to experience in this passage this morning is that Peter is going to try to frame what the correct expectations are of the Christian life and how that impacts how we go through suffering. So this morning, what I want us to see specifically are four keys to suffering faithfully, four elements that we need to understand in order to go through suffering in this life 
in a godly way, and it begins with having the right expectations. So here's number one. Number one, first key, is to expect suffering. Expect suffering. Look at verse 12 with me. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And just pause there for a moment. The word that, that should immediately pop uh, to you as you read that is the word beloved. It's the first word of our passage. Peter doesn't use that word often throughout this letter, but when he does, he's, he's always using that to begin a new section. That he used the same word in chapter 2, verse 11, to begin a new section, and he does so yet again in our passage here this morning. But Peter's not introducing a new topic. This topic of suffering and how to go through suffering in a godly way has been a key and major theme throughout this letter that we've seen numerous times. But the way that Peter is using this word beloved is he is uh, introducing a new section in the fact that he's starting to kind of land the plane with this letter. He's starting to kind of turn the corner and he's, he's closing out the letter, but he wants one last word on this important topic of how to suffer well as a follower of Jesus. And I think Peter also uses this term beloved to prepare his audience to embrace something that's going to be difficult to receive. It's almost like Peter is saying, look, I, I really love you guys and I'm for you, but what I'm about to say is going to be hard to hear and it's going to be hard to accept. And what Peter has to say that is hard to accept is for us to expect suffering as a follower of Jesus. That Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as if it were strange. Now I want to point out to you that the fact that the word surprise at the beginning of verse 12 and the word strange towards the end of verse 12 is actually the same Greek word. In fact, it's the same word that we looked at last week in chapter 4, verse 4, uh, when Peter says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same sort of, of immoral living. The point being is that your godliness is not neutral. That Peter's using this word and he's saying, look, if, if you're godly, the world is going to think that you're weird. It's gonna, they're going to think that you are strange. And yet at the same time, do not think that it's strange when they uh, persecute you or when they insult you or mock you or mistreat you because you are godly. And so your godliness has an effect, it has an impact on how the world perceives you and how the world will treat you. So Peter says, look, don't be surprised when you experience suffering from the world. Now, what does Peter mean, though, by fiery trial? What, what, is, what is he getting at? And what's, what's causing this fiery trial to take place in the life of a believer? I want to spend just a couple of moments on unpacking what fiery trial is referring to, because the reality is, when you and I read a word like trial or suffering, we sometimes attach our own definition and our own understanding of that word uh, into the passage. And that word, suffering or trial, it's, it's in, it has a lot of baggage to it. And so I want to address what Peter is referring to so that we understand what these four keys actually are. I want to begin with what it's not for a moment. That what Peter is not referring to when he says fiery trial is disobedience. This fiery trial is not caused by our sin in our life or by disobeying God. Now, of course, we do experience consequences. We experience 
a type of suffering for our sin when we are disobedient against God. But Peter here is not laying out four keys to remaining faithful when you suffer because of your sin. Peter's also not referring to fiery trial that's caused because of unwise decision-making. Again, there are very real repercussions and consequences for dumb decisions and just kind of uh, not wise decisions. But again, Peter's not referring to fiery trial as the result of unwise decisions. Peter is also not referring to fiery trial that comes about because of unfortunate circumstances. He's not saying that these trials come about for no reason that you can point to or things that are outside of your control. He's not talking about that. But what Peter is referring to when he says fiery trial is he's talking about being insulted or being mocked or being mistreated because you're a follower of Jesus living in godliness. Look at verse 14. He says, if you are insulted, why? For the name of Christ. Then jump down to verse 16. It says, yet if anyone suffers, why? As a Christian. Okay, so this idea of this fiery trial and trial and suffering Peter uses interchangeably throughout our letter comes about because you're living as a faithful follower of Jesus. It's not because you're in sin, which is what verse 15 gets at, but it's according to God's will, according to verse 19. And so this type of suffering or fiery trial is kind of this this verbal assault or this this verbal attack from unbelievers because you are a follower of Jesus. Let me kind of sum this up with a practical example or illustration. Let's say you're, um, let's say you're an employee and your boss is, uh, is causing suffering in your life. Now, what Peter is not saying is that because you're an employee and you're receiving mistreatment or you're receiving insults from your boss, he's not saying that that's because you're lazy or because you cut corners, which would be a sin. He's not saying that. He's not saying that it's because you're you're staying up too late at night, and so you walk into work tired and you're performing poorly, which would be an unwise decision. He's not saying that the mistreatment is caused by the fact that your boss hates everybody, including atheists, which would be an unfortunate circumstance. What Peter is saying here is that your boss is mistreating you or insulting you because you're a follower of Jesus and because of your godliness. That there's something about being godly that stands in opposition to the world and unbelievers. And Peter says, look, don't be surprised by this. Expect this type of treatment from the world. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He says, a cheap Christianity that offends nobody requires no sacrifice, and costs nothing, is worth nothing. What he's getting at there is that the essence of being a Christian and being a follower of Jesus means that you are set apart and that you are holy, and therefore you stand in opposition to the priorities and the, and the values of this world. That there's something about being a follower of Jesus that doesn't sit quite right with the world and with unbelievers. Or the way that Jesus put it in Luke 6.26. He says, Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. I think what Jesus is getting at there and what Peter's getting at is that there's something that's offensive about the gospel of Jesus Christ that provokes the world to mistreating us. See, sometimes when we talk about the gospel and we talk about sharing the gospel and living out the gospel, 
we can sometimes fall into taking the edge or the exclusivity out of the gospel. But when you think about the gospel message for a moment, the gospel message is an offensive message to the average person. See, the gospel declares that you need someone else outside of yourself to save you. The gospel says that you cannot work or earn for your salvation. You cannot earn his love. And for the average person, especially for the American, that is awfully offensive. Like you tell any average American, you can't earn something or work for it, and there's going to be opposition. And there should be as followers of Jesus that, yes, we want to speak the truth in love, and we want to build bridges of grace that hold the weight of truth, but we don't want to take the edge out of the gospel and the exclusivity of the gospel and the call on our lives to live as godly followers of Jesus. So Peter says, expect suffering, expect insult, expect mistreatments. Look, I think this is important for two reasons here. One, I think expecting suffering allows us not to have an inappropriate relationship with the world. That this keeps us from uh, kind of holding the world to the same standard of ethics as we hold the church. That this kind of releases us from expecting corporations and other, other areas within this culture to follow the same standard of living that we hold to followers of Jesus. It releases us from that. And so we expect corporations from this world not to abide by the ethics of the Bible. They're, they're the world. They're unconverted. Of course they're going to act that way. And so let's not be surprised when they produce movies or whatever it might be that go against the gospel and the word of God. But I think this also helps us. It's because framing, having the right expectations allows us to, when we actually experience insult, when we, when we actually experience this type of pushback from the world, we are more ready to endure it in a godly way. See, if you're expecting to be friends with the world or buddy-buddy with the world or, or have no opposition towards the world, and when it comes, it might take you completely off guard that you're at a disadvantage to live in a godly way and to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. In the same way, my first semester of college was rough because I had the wrong expectations of what I was going to experience. So Peter is saying, adjust your expectations so that you're better prepared and so your affections will line up towards Christ and not towards the world. And so what, what are your expectations like as it relates to the world? What do you expect from the world and how the world should treat you as a follower of Jesus? That when you're mistreated or when you hear about someone else who's a follower of Jesus be insulted, are, are you really surprised by that? Does that take you off guard? Or do you think to yourself, well, yeah, we should expect that because we don't belong to this world. We belong wholly to Jesus Christ. I think Peter is really trying to help us here. Chapter 5, verse 12, he talks about standing firm in, in the teachings throughout this letter. Peter is trying to help us stand firm. And the first place he goes in this passage is to expect suffering. That suffering is not strange. So settle this in your mind, that to expect to be insulted or to be mistreated by the world because you're a follower of Jesus. So expect suffering. Now, number two, uh, another key uh, in order for us to, to suffer faithfully, is to understand that there's purpose in the suffering. There's purpose in the, the fiery trial that we go through. It's important to know that God does not waste 
any type of suffering that we go through, especially this kind of suffering from unbelievers around us. Look at verse 12 again. Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Okay, let me pause there. That's really kind of the first purpose for us to understand that when we go through the fiery trial, it's there in order to test us. Okay, now jump down to verses 17 and 18. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Now, what is... What does Peter mean here when he says that it is time for the judgment to begin at the household of God? What Peter's not meaning here is that the type of punishment that Christians receive for sinful living is the judgment that we are to experience in the household of God. He's not saying that that God is going to put down judgment upon the church and, and he's going to use the world and unbelievers to insult and mistreat us as a form of judgment. But in fact, what Peter is referring to is he's using judgment here in the sense of the sufferings that you and I go through because we're followers of Jesus is to see who really is a Christian. In other words, when you and I go through the fiery trial of suffering for being a Christian and you remain faithful to Jesus Christ and you live a a godly life through it, you are passing the judgment or you are passing through the test and proving that you're a follower of Jesus. So Peter is saying here that this begins with the church, it begins with the household of God, that he presents these opportunities for us to prove that we are followers of Jesus, and we need to pass this judgment and pass the test. And Peter says in verse 18, basically if I could summarize this verse, he's basically saying that if God permits suffering for us Christians to judge to see if we're really faithful or not, then imagine the outcome for those who are not Christians, for those who do not obey the gospel. And what he's referring to there is the eternal punishment for those who do not obey the gospel. So Peter is basically comparing the the type of present suffering in this life because of our godliness to the eternal suffering in the next life for those who are ungodly and unconverted. That he's saying, how much more for them that if we as followers of Jesus go through this type of suffering from the world, imagine those who aren't even saved, what they will go through for eternity. So part of the purpose here of suffering for us to understand is that there is this test. There's this judgment that the Lord kind of allows us to go through. The sufferings we endure they're not random. They're not, they're not a waste. They're not as a result to punish us, but there's, there's purpose to them. And so how? Like, what's the purpose in going through these fiery trials? What, what does this mean that they test us? Well, I want to point out three things here that, that suffering does for us that brings purpose. Number one, I think that the fiery trials, they, they reveal us. That these fiery trials has a way of, of exposing who we are and what we actually believe. It's almost like that when we go through life, and life is just fine, like we know what we believe, but when we go through the fiery trial, that's when we find out what we really believe. I remember officiating a wedding, and I was laying out uh, the the biblical understanding of marriage between a a husband and a wife, and, and I was sharing the gospel and the power of the gospel. And right after the ceremony, I had a gentleman come up to me and rip into me verbally 
for laying out the gospel. How dare I talk about that and, 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 and explain marriage in that way? And just kind of experiencing kind of that, that verbal uh, kind of suffering for being a follower of Jesus in that moment. There was an opportunity that revealed what I really believe and who I really am. Am I going to go off on this guy and explain that he's wrong and I'm right? Am I going to insult in return? Or am I going to respond in a way that's godly, in a way that's loving, in a way that's patient and yet true to God's word? See, when we go through suffering, it has a way of revealing where we are spiritually. In fact, I think it has a way of revealing where we are spiritually in a similar way that working out at the gym exposes where we are physically. But if you think about working out at the gym, like everything is exposed, like how much weight you're lifting, like your stamina on the treadmill, like everyone can kind of see the weight that you're lifting or, or even your appearance. Like when you go to the gym, you can't really hide, you can't wear like a parka and, and hide some areas of, of your body that you don't want to be as visible. And yet when you walk out of the gym, you can, you can hide any part of your body that you don't want to be made visible. And so if you go with that illustration for a moment, when life is just fine, when you're not going through suffering, it's really easy to hide the flaws in our life. It's really easy to hide those, those areas of our life that, that, that's caught up in sin or, or things that we need to work on. And yet, when you experience suffering, especially this kind of suffering, you almost enter into God's gymnasium for a moment. You start to experience a, a type of, of revealing of who you really are, that your short temper or uh, your unloving responses or your anxiety starts to be exposed in that moment. See, part of the purpose of the fiery trial is to expose and to reveal where you truly are. And yet not only that, but I think that the fiery trial brings purpose because it also stretches us. It stretches us. See, when we go through these trials, our ability to trust in God, that God is enough, that his promises are true, it, 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 we, we experience this type of stretching. See, suffering confronts the basic truth that God is good. See, we know, we know up here that God is good. We know that, that God is for us, that he's not against us. We know that his promises are true. And yet, as, as children of God, when we experience suffering for being a Christian, there's kind of a gap that starts to develop in our lives where we have truth that we affirm up here in our minds and yet down here in our hearts, we're experiencing kind of something that's different. And so there's this gap between what we know to be true and what we're experiencing. We start to think, yeah, I know that you're good, but I don't, I don't feel that you're good because this suffering is hard. And so there's this gap that exists, and, and so much of the purpose of the fiery trial is to make sure that we're living by faith and not by sight, that the faith is what bridges that gap between what we know to be true and what we are experiencing. See, it's faith, it's this trust, it's this belief that, God, you don't feel good, but I know that you're good, so I'm going to trust you anyways. God, I know that you're for me, that you're not against me, even though this suffering feels like you're against me, but I'm going to trust you anyways. See, part of the, the problems in our life when we go through the fiery trial is we want to live by sight. And so we don't really know what to do with the gap that exists between what we know and what we are feeling and what we experience. And so there's this stretching of our faith that takes place within the fiery trial that's really, really good for us. 
that when we come out on the other side of the, of the furnace of affliction, we are a stronger follower of Jesus because we've been stretched. Third thing that I feel like uh, that, that, uh, that uh, fiery trials reveal or uh, expose us with is it solidifies us that there's purpose within the fiery trial because there, there's something about going through this type of suffering that it takes the abstract knowledge of God and it moves it out of the abstract and into this experiential living reality, this encounter with God, that we take all that we know about who God is and, and what the Bible says, and when we go through suffering, God has a way of solidifying the truth deep inside of our souls. And it's not that God reveals something new. It's not that when we go through suffering that we're looking for an epiphany. But I think so much of the growth is that he takes what we already know and he, and he pushes it deep down inside of our souls and he solidifies it into our lives. I love how um, Tim Keller puts this process of, of how God solidifies truth in our lives deeper into us. He says, Christianity teaches that unlike fatalism, suffering is overwhelming. Unlike Buddhism, suffering is real. Unlike karma, suffering is often unfair. But unlike secularism, suffering is meaningful, that there is purpose to it. And if faced rightly, it can drive us like a nail deep into the love of God and into more stability and spiritual power than you can imagine. See, when you and I go through suffering for being a Christian, for being godly, and we say to God, God, I don't like this. God, I don't, I don't understand this. This doesn't feel good, but... I will still trust in you, but I will still lean upon your promises. God takes all of the truth that we know and he drives it deeper into our souls and he solidifies us deeper into his love. See, there's, there's purpose in the type of suffering that we go through for the name of Jesus. I love how Peter even states this in the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the re revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter is saying that these trials, these testings have a way of, of revealing our faith to see if it's really genuine. I think through, through being tested by the fire of suffering, we might be found praising God. We might be solidified in the person of who God is. So my question for you today is, is are, you, are you finding the purpose in the sufferings that you go through for the name of Jesus Christ? Are you understanding that, there's, that there is purpose behind it, that God is not wasting your suffering? Are you understanding that God is, is exposing and, and kind of revealing things in your life that you need to repent of or that you need to change or that you need to know? You understanding that, that through the, the various trials, God is stretching you and making you stronger and, and solidifying you deeper into who he is, that he's, he's not wasting the things that we go through. That's the second key of, of faithful suffering. Number three here, that the third key to faithful suffering is to choose joy, not despair. Choose joy, not despair. Look at verses 13 and 14 and notice the command to rejoice here. 
He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, I just want to just state something very obvious here that this is a really bizarre statement by Peter. Like first he wants us to expect suffering, which is very counterintuitive. But now here he wants us to, to rejoice when we suffer. Like that's, that's a really strange way of putting it. Now, why, why does he want us to choose joy over despair when we go through suffering? Well, I think it's because of what verse 13 says. See, according to verse 13, we are to rejoice as we experience the sufferings in this life for being a Christian so that we might rejoice and be glad in the future when we see God in his glory face to face. See, there's a connection that Peter is trying to make here between the future glory and the future joy that is ours in Christ and the impact that that will have on the, on the present life and in the sufferings that we go through. See, there's something about meditating on where we're headed as followers of Jesus, that there is so much glory to see and experience. There's so much joy that we will be filled with when we see the Lord face to face in the new heavens. And by meditating on that, by thinking about that, by filling our souls with that reality, it has the ability to fill us with true joy no matter what we go through in this life. And so Peter wants us to choose joy, not despair, because your ability to, to rejoice in the sufferings now is proof that you will rejoice in the future. That you could almost put it this way. If, if you are failing to rejoice in the sufferings now, that is putting in jeopardy the future reality of rejoicing and, and seeing the glory of the Lord in the future. See, true followers of Jesus are, are marked by this rejoicing, uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit kind of bubbling over you no matter what you go through because your joy is not in this world. It is in the one to come. And so if you're not rejoicing and having this joy in your life in the sufferings now, are you really trusting in Jesus? Are you really a follower of him? See, Peter is connecting this future glory and this present joy. And yet not only that, but verse 14 he says, if you're insulted because you're a Christian, you are blessed, and the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. This is also an amazing claim that if you're insulted, you're, you're blessed. I, I wonder if, if the words of Jesus were like ringing in Peter's ears as he was writing this of, of Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, when Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you. Now, I think the, the blessing is not in the suffering itself, but I think that the, the, the blessing is in connection with the presence of the Spirit of glory and of God. That God is with you, God is in you, and God is for you, no matter what type of suffering that you're going through. And so I think Peter is kind of connecting this idea of, of the joy that we can experience with the fact that the Spirit of glory is with you and in you in the midst of suffering, enabling you to enjoy and to rejoice in the sufferings. That's really good news. Like that reality that there is something unique, there's something special about the presence of God when you suffer for the name of Jesus that enables us to rejoice and to be glad. 
But I love Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 puts this beautifully, the presence of God in suffering. This is God saying, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. I love that because it's a promise that God is with you and God is for you, no matter what type of fiery trial that you go through. And look, that reality should enable joy within you. See, joy is experienced when you have settled in your heart that you want the presence of God more than you want a trial-free life. That true joy is experienced when you say, I just want the presence of God in my life. I don't care if there's suffering. I don't care whatever else I go through. I just want the spirit of glory to be experienced in my life. That's when true joy is experienced, that you want God more than you want this suffering to go away. And so this key is to choose, choose joy, not despair, because the spirit of God is with you. And number four here, the last thing, last key, is to know your assignment in the midst of suffering. Look with me at verses 15 and 16, and we'll skip over 17 and 18 because we've already talked about that, and then we'll finish with verse 19. Peter says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Now jump down to verse 19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, the, the first three keys that we've looked at, the expect suffering, uh, to know the purpose within suffering, and to choose joy and not despair, I think refer to more of your posture towards suffering. But here, number four, knowing your assignment is basically like action steps, or here's what I want you to live out in the midst of suffering. Here's what I want you to do. Or you could, you could look at it more like, here's, here's your job description in the midst of suffering. Here, here's some bullet points to keep in mind as you live out a faithful life to, G, uh, to Jesus. Or husbands, like as much as we like, complain about the honey to-do list from our wives, like they're really, really helpful because it, it tells us what is kind of expected of us for that weekend and what we need to do in order to please our wives. Well, in a similar way, I think Peter is kind of laying out like a job description or like a honey to-do list for us to, to live out and to pursue in the midst of suffering. So let me point out four bullet points as part of our job description in the midst of suffering that make up our assignment. That number one, that we are to avoid sin. Avoid sin. Looking at verse 15 and some of 16, obviously you stand back and you look at verse 15, you're like, okay, we're not supposed to be doing those things in verse 15. That's obvious. And Peter's using that verse to say that, that the suffering that you experience should not be the result of living verse 15. Okay, that's, that's obvious. But then you get to verse 16, and, and he talks about uh, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Okay, now Peter is not saying avoid feeling embarrassed for suffering as a Christian. He's not saying avoid feeling mortified for being a Christian. What what he's saying here is avoid actions that would cause shame to be upon your life. 
avoid the type, the type of things that are shameful, namely denying Christ in front of unbelievers. Avoid that. Avoid insulting in return when people insult you for following Jesus. Uh, avoid those types of actions that are shameful. Now, it should be fairly obvious that those types of things in, in public we should avoid, that when you are mocked or when you are mistreated, that we shouldn't retaliate in an ungodly way. That's obvious. But this also means privately we should avoid sin. See, there, there's something about suffering and this type of suffering that, that makes us very vulnerable and very susceptible to sinning. That when someone mocks you for being a follower of Jesus, you, you are very much exposed in that moment. And so the challenge here is to avoid sinning publicly, but also to avoid sinning privately when, when no one is around you. To avoid self-medicating yourself to get through the fiery trial that we are to avoid sin. Now the second assignment as part of our job description is to glorify God. So 16b, he talks about how uh, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so avoid actions that are shameful, and as a result, make sure that you're confessing and praising and glorifying God. Make sure you're, you're talking about the greatness and the beauty of who God is, even in the midst of suffering. That's a huge aspect of our job description. No matter if you are suffering, it's to draw people's attention to the beauty of God. Now, honestly, the only way that you will be able to, to glorify God and to talk about the beauty of who God is, is if you understand that God is beautiful deep inside your hearts. Like, if God is not beautiful to you, when you're going through the midst of suffering, you will, you will not be able to glorify God in the midst of it. That there is a connection between seeing and understanding the beauty of God and glorifying Him. Or as, as Tim Keller puts it, I'll quote him again here, he talks about how Jonathan Edwards once said that God is glorified not only by His glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. That it's not enough to say, I guess he is God, so I have got to knuckle under. You have to see his beauty. That glorifying God does not mean obeying him only because you have to. It means to obey him because you want to, because you are attracted to him, because you delight in him. Keller says that we need beauty. Specifically, we need to see the beauty of God in order to glorify him in the face of suffering that we need to take the beauty of God and to rub it deep inside of our souls. We need to use the word of God and, and meditate on the, on the word of God and to, and, to, and to pray to God, to cry out to him in our prayer lives, to sing our hearts out to him even when our hearts hurt, to, to fill our lives with, with life-giving fellowship so that when suffering comes in our lives and, and bumps us around, what comes out, what spills out is glorifying to him. So we need to see the beauty of God in order to glorify him when we go through suffering. The third aspect here is to entrust your soul to God. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. That's so much of, of entrusting ourselves to God is, is just saying, God, like, I, I don't like this suffering. This, this does not feel good. I don't, I don't quite understand this, 
but I'm going to entrust myself. I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to submit to your sovereignty and to your leadership in my life. Basically, you're saying, God, I, I don't fully understand all of the purpose of here, but I'm going to go through this as long as you want me to go through this because I trust that you are faithful. Look, the reality is, is that each and every one of us is entrusting ourselves to something. That even if you're a follower of Jesus, like you might entrust yourself to God for eternity, but are you entrusting yourself in the midst of suffering to the faithful creator? See, it's so tempting to entrust yourself to other things besides God in the face of suffering, to entrust ourselves to, to the entertainment world or to entrust ourselves to kind of a, a pet sin, to kind of medicate ourselves to get through the suffering, to entrust ourselves to how much money we have or to our, our, our success in our careers or to what other people think of us. The challenge here that Peter is, is, is giving us is to entrust ourselves not only for eternity, but in the face of suffering to say, God, I trust you. God, I know that you're for me. I know that you're with me, and I'm going to yield to you. I'm not going to take a shortcut. I'm going to yield to your sovereign plan in the midst of suffering. Look, you might be here, and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not, not a Christian here today, and, and you're here at church. I, I want to point out the obvious fact that you're also entrusting yourself to something or someone that maybe it's one of the things that I just listed. Maybe it is your career. It's how much money you make. Maybe it's living for the moment. And I just want to lovingly say to you that all of those things will not last. If you're not a follower of Jesus here, those things that you're trusting, they will not hold up. That your, your job, you could lose your job tomorrow. That your, your health could turn on a dime that those relationships that you're entrusting your soul to could be severed next week. And yet the only thing that will last, the only thing that will hold up is entrusting your soul to Jesus Christ. Now why? It's because Jesus Christ went through the worst kind of suffering, the worst kind of injustice, the the worst kind of tragedy on the cross 2,000 years ago for your sin. And entrusting yourself to this God who bled, who died for the forgiveness of your sins, demands a response upon your life. It demands that you are confronted with the reality that there is a faithful creator who has made a way for you, for your sins to be forgiven, and for you to have eternal life. And my plea with you this morning is to yield your life to Jesus and to entrust your faith and your trust upon him, to give your life to him and to surrender your life to him so that you're not entrusting yourself to things that will not last. To give your life to Jesus. And yet this challenge here is is really a challenge for both unbelievers and believers to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator, no matter if you're being mocked, no matter if you're being insulted, no matter what kind of mistreatment that you're going through, we yield to God and his sovereignty. Now, lastly here, number four, last aspect of, of this job description is to do good. Verse 19b, he uh, is so simple here, but he talks about entrusting their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's just so simple, and yet it's, it's so helpful. Because one thing that, that suffering wants to do in our lives is it wants to paralyze us. It wants to kind of handcuff us from from doing good, from from pursuing the Lord in that moment. That suffering has a way of 
of allowing us to become self-absorbed and and self-obsessed, to just look down at our own suffering. So this is so helpful by Peter. It's so simple that Peter's saying, look up at other people. Look up and see how you can minister to the people around you. Don't miss the opportunities that God has prepared for you. Or according to Paul in Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them, that we might do them. So look, even in the midst of suffering, God in his sovereignty has prepared good works for you to do, for you to walk into. Why? So that the world can look at you and say, wow, there's something remarkably different about you. That even in the midst of suffering, your head is up and you're looking how you can serve and how you can minister to others by doing good. And so the keys here of of how to faithfully go through suffering and to do it well is to expect suffering, to understand that there's purpose in suffering, to choose joy, not despair, and to know your assignment in the midst of suffering, to keep your head up. just want to encourage you, there is, there is joy to be had in the midst of suffering. It's not like this is a time out for you to not experience the joy. There's joy to be had, there's glory to be seen, and there's good for us to do. Let's Let's endure the suffering that we might experience faithfully. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you that you are the the faithful creator. God, we thank you that you are trustworthy. God, I thank you so much that you're a God that we can turn to in the midst of our suffering and that you are there, that you are for us, and that you're not against us. Lord, I just pray, Lord, this morning for those who just walk in here today with just a heavy burden, because this passage describes them, that they are, they are going through insults. They are being mocked for being followers of you. They are being mistreated by perhaps a coworker, by maybe a neighbor, a friend, someone in their family because they claim the name of Jesus. And so I pray that you would, you would minister to them. Lord, I pray that you would, you would shape their expectations, that you would help them to choose joy because you are with them in the midst of the fiery trial. So it would help us to to glorify you, to see your beauty, to see that you are good. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.